wanted to get here so early. The football game doesn't start for hours. <laughs> We're not here for the game. The game is nothing. The game is crap. The game makes me sick. The real reason we Americans put up with sports is for this. Behold, the tailgate party, the pinnacle of human achievement. Since the dawn of parking lots, man has sought to stuff his guts with food and alcohol in anticipation of watching others exercise. What childbirth is to women, eating trunk meats is to the big winged. What could be greater than eating and drinking for hours in a drizzly parking lot? Anything. No, everything is better. Anything. Everything. Anything. Everything. Anything. Everything. Anything. Everything. Anything. Everything. Daddy, I made a Ralph witch. When I, uh, I went to my first tailgating party probably when I was in my early 20s. I didn't really know what a tailgating party was. I just thought, oh, great. Uh, it was going to be at the University of Washington Huskies uh, football game. And I had never been to a football game, even though I attended the University of Washington. And so I was excited. Great, I can finally uh, go to the game. Think of the same thing where it's become this event in its own right. People get excited about uh, the food and the party and the, all the chips ending in Edo's. And the commercials. Right? All these brand new commercials, you know, the, seeing the, the first, I think I heard the, the Star Wars, the next Star Wars movie trailer might be shown or something like that. So we get excited, the halftime show, like all these things that kind of surround the actual game is what people get hyped up about. And the Super Bowl, no doubt, has been um, commercialized as this American ritual such that people who, who care nothing about football will on this day go and watch somewhere, maybe more interested in the commercials, maybe more interested in the halftime show, who knows, but this has become a ritual that we as Americans engage in. For some, going to church worship has become that kind of ritual. And we're going to see in this passage that that is exactly what is happening for the Jews. Worship has sort of become less about worshiping God and more about all the things around worshiping God. And Jesus came to disrupt that. Jesus came to disrupt our fake view of worship. And the couple questions that I want to ask this morning, the first question is, why is it that we have a tendency to lose sight of the point of worship? Why do we have a tendency to lose sight of the point of worship? And the second question that I want to ask is, how does Jesus help us to regain our sight of the true point of worship? And so this message will break down into two very simple points. The first point is, uh, man disrupts true worship. And the second is that Jesus disrupts fake worship. Those are kind of the two points. Point number one, man disrupts true worship. So let's start reading uh, through this passage. In verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to 
Jerusalem. Now, it's important to understand what's going on here. The Passover is, is an incredible celebration. It's a feast, remembering something that God had done. This, for the Jews, would have been their Super Bowl. This was a big deal. This was a big event, a big to-do. If anyone who is anyone would have been there in Jerusalem for this feast. And, and Passover is something that harkens back to uh, an event in the, in the Jewish people's history where they were enslaved, they were oppressed by the country of Egypt, by the Pharaoh, they were put on themselves burdens that they could not bear, and they were crying out to God for, 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 for freedom. And God chooses Moses as the person who begins to organize and lead them out of Egypt. But in the process, God does all these plagues, okay? And one of the last plagues he does is he's going to kill the firstborn son of all the Egyptians. And in order for the Jewish people to be spared that wrath, what they do is they kill a lamb and they take the blood, they eat the lamb in haste, and they take the blood and put it on their doorposts and so when the angel of death comes at night to go and do the the deed he passes over those houses with the blood of the lamb on the house and so they have this celebration called Passover and so the celebration is a celebration of God's willingness and demonstration of his salvation in passing over the Jews and and we know later that the, that was the last straw for, for Pharaoh. He said, like, get out of here, go worship your God. And so God was, from the beginning, wanting to see the Jewish people free to worship him. And so that we have the celebration of Passover. Now, what's actually happening here at the feast? We read in verse 14, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So there is, I think, a, a picture of the temple. Uh, there was basically a, a, an obligation, if you were able, as a Jew, to go to Jerusalem and offer your sacrifices during the festival of Passover. Okay? Now, not everyone who was a Jew was in Jerusalem. And so when Passover came, a lot of people would have to travel from far distances uh, to be able to bring their sacrifices. And, and in some cases, it just wasn't feasible. Like, can you imagine if coming to church, you had to bring a, a cow and a lamb and pigeons every Sunday, right? It'd be inconvenient, especially if you were traveling from large distances. And that's the point. And so they had this service that was set up as a convenience. And so you would come to the temple and where the, do we have that picture by the way? Okay, great. So you would come to the temple and outside there's this place on the top right called the Court of Gentiles. That's where they were set up. And so they had there for you to purchase sacrifices ready-made, already blessed, already approved, spotless, blemish and they charged extra so not only if you didn't come with the sacrifice you could come to the temple and you could pay more and we do this right with big events if you've ever been to a large event and you you go to it whether it's disneyland whether it's uh 
the World Series or at the Super Bowl, if you're at the place, you pay more, right? You get a hot dog, it's like $14 for a hot dog. Right? And this, so you pay for that convenience. And so they're, they're like good business people, actually. They're thinking, hey, this is a big event. It's drawing all the crowds. Like, they, they know that most people can't bring all their sacrifices. And guess what? Even if they do bring your sacrifices, guess who's in charge of approving the sacrifices? The priests. They might have a really, really high bar if their income was a little bit low that year, right? No, I don't. I see a little speck. It's unapproved. We'll purchase it from you. you know, a dime on the dollar. And here, we'll go have you purchase our approved sacrifice. And so what's going on is this system that is using the people who are coming. And, and it's really important to see where it's taking place. This is not taking place inside the temple. It's taking place in the court of the Gentiles. And that's the place where the Gentiles... So not only did Jews come to the Passover to worship, but sometimes uh, Gentiles or, or God-fearers, as they were called... Who, who respected Yahweh, who worshipped Yahweh, who would celebrate, want to celebrate with the Jews the Passover, they could not go into the temple, but they could come into the court of the Gentiles. Now, if you can imagine what this scene is like, when I was, uh, in 2004, I went to Boston, and, and those of you who are baseball fans know that they won the World Series that year. And I went there right as the World Series was occurring. And I went to Fenway Park. And I just wanted to experience like all of the excitement and all of the buzz. And I saw all of the vendors lining the street. All of the people in all their Red Sox gear. It was kind of fun. It was exciting. But it was noisy. It was chaotic. Like you couldn't really think. And all of that's okay as long as if you go into the game, none of that's there. But imagine if you're watching the Super Bowl. Have you ever seen, like, the Dr. Pepper guy? Like, ice cold Dr. Pepper here. Like, that's cool if it's outside the stadium, or that's cool maybe if you're in the stands. But what if that guy is trying to sell Dr. Pepper on the 50-yard line while they're actually in the middle of the game? It's disruptive, is it not? It's interesting. Businesses will try to get as close to the game as they can get, by the way. Like, that's why you see in, in soccer, sponsorships on the jersey, right? They'll get as close to the game as they can get before people just go, no, no, that's too much. So they'll put advertisements all around the stadium. I'm just waiting for the day when someone does a, touch, uh, a, a touchdown dance and, like, drops the thing, watch Netflix at 5 p.m. It's probably a good idea. Someone should do that. But what's happening here in the court of the Gentiles, that's the playing field. When it comes to worship, that is the place where Gentiles would worship. And so for them to uh, have this system of commerce in the middle of their playing field, so to speak, was disruptive to people who were truly trying to worship God. And so what is Jesus' response? We're going to get to that later. What's the problem? The problem is the place. 
It's not, it's not business in general. Jesus is not mad at business. Jesus is mad at where this is taking place. It's interrupting true worship. The question is, why do we do this? Why do the Jews do this? What's the reason why people would want to and think it's a good idea to interrupt true worship? And I would submit to you that the reason why is because of a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. It's a lack of trust that, that God alone is enough, that God alone is sufficient. If we don't believe that God in himself is enough for all our needs, then we will seek things outside of God above God. Does that make sense? I will, pri- I will prioritize other things, the things that we care about, wealth, health, relationships, like the basic things of life, the things that we need, we will prioritize those above God if we don't trust that God himself is sufficient. Where do I see this? If we skip ahead just a few verses, you have um, these verses starting verse 23 through 25, which is kind of its own little section that sits in between uh, verses 13 through 22 and then starting of chapter 3. And the question is, uh, these verses, is it a conclusion to the last section or is it an introduction to the next section? And I think it's actually both. It's concluding the first section in that it's identifying something about the hearts of the people who are claiming to worship that Jesus is not filling, okay? And so let's, let's look at those verses. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his own part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And Jesus is basically saying there's a type of worship that's not really genuine. There's, there's people who believe in Jesus. They believe in his name, it says, because of the signs that they saw. And Jesus' response to that belief is that I'm not entrusting myself to them. Entrust and believe, those are the same basic word in, in the Greek. And so it's a word play that's intentional. It's like they trusted in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust in them. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Because it says he saw their heart. In other words, they were putting on an exterior. They were putting on an appearance, a facade that said, yeah, Jesus, I believe in you because of the signs that you're doing. And those signs, what did Jesus do? Jesus, We don't have a lot of recorded signs, but we know that the, the signs that we see in John are not the only signs that Jesus has done. We've seen so far Jesus turn water into wine. All right, that's a cool party trick. Like, who doesn't want more wine? Later, we see Jesus multiplies bread and fishes, loaves and fish, for a crowd of thousands of people. Like, who doesn't want more food at their table, more feasting to be had? 
Like the people like these types of signs. It's not a surprise that they believe in Jesus. But Jesus sees through and knows their hearts and says, I'm not trusting entrusting myself to them. Later on, we'll, we'll look at that story where, where Jesus does multiply the, the loaves and the fish and, and, and people love it and he's, he's, he's gathered this huge following. And then later he says, all right, you know, you need to eat me actually. <laughs> and they're like, no, we don't want you. <laughs> we just want the bread. Give us the bread. Give us the toast. And so Jesus sees through it. He doesn't entrust himself. There's a lack of belief that's at play. We're happy. The the question I want to ask us is this, actually. If you could have all the stuff that God gives, all the money, all the resources, all the health, all the relationships, but not have God, Would you be missing anything? And I believe the honest answer to that question will identify who you worship. And it's unfortunate, I think, that oftentimes we say we love God, oftentimes we do the God thing, we come to church, we we, we have our Bibles, maybe we don't read them, but we've got them with us, or we've downloaded the app on our phone. We do these religious things. We do our religious duty. But the question is, do we love God? Do we want God? Is God enough? Is Jesus enough for us? Are we satisfied with just the things outside of God? Are we missing anything if we don't have Jesus? That's the heart of the question. And I think when we look at this passage Jesus is seeing people who believe in him like Amazon believes in Christmas. It's good for selling more stuff. It's good for getting what you want. It's good for checking the box of your religious activity. Jesus cares about our faith, our trust in him. And the Jewish leaders are demonstrating they care more about their pocketbooks than they do about true worship. Now, how does Jesus respond? Jesus disrupts false worship. That's the second point. Jesus disrupts false worship. Let's look at verse... 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. How does Jesus look in this passage? I think angry would be an appropriate word. Now, is he angry in the sense of, like, his his top just blew? He's just, like, spontaneously, like, ah! I mean, some people read that. I read that passage 
before, I thought, oh, maybe that's what Jesus is doing. I think it's, Jesus is in full control of his emotions. He's not being dominated by his emotions. He's intentionally angry. It says he makes a cord of, uh, makes a, 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 a whip of cords. Like, that's not like instant. That means he spent some time tying cords together, making sure it would stay together when he planned to whip the people. Now, in a polite society, there's things you do and there's things you don't do, right? Um, Stephanie and I, we uh, went to two events in the last month. One was a UW basketball game, and the other was a uh, Pacific North, or not a Pacific North, a ballet um, from the line or something like that. Anyhow, it was a ballet. She knows more, obviously. Okay, so at the basketball game, I can say something like this. Come on, pass the ball. And that's okay. Now, if I'm sitting at the ballet and I say, come on, stay on point. That's not okay, all right? In the first case, I'm actually invisible. No one would notice me. Come on, pass the ball. People do that all the time at basketball games, football games. You can yell. You can curse, right? You can do all that in a basketball game, football game. It's accepted. But if you do that at ballet, you're not invisible. You're very, very visible. And probably that's, uh, probably she's upset with me if I do that next time. Now, is there any place where it's acceptable to whip people in public and turn over their cash registers? Probably not. I can't imagine if you go down to the farmer's market when they open and you whip the merchants out of their booths and you turn over their cash registers, you're going to find out pretty quick that's not acceptable in any context. So what Jesus is doing is very disruptive. Like even in their culture, trust me, it's disruptive. They don't like it. They don't like it. But Jesus does it. What he's doing is he's interrupting the status quo. Uh, For the Jews at that time, Passover, that was Passover. Okay? With all the commerce, with all the trade, all of that going on, became, it became the status quo. So no one was up in arms. No one was like, hey, what about the Gentiles? Or, hey, you're ripping us off. Or, hey, it was kind of like people had become very comfortable with what had become worship in Jerusalem at Passover. And it's, it's not, this is not a story of just the Jewish leaders oppressing uh, the, the worshipers, it is, it is a both and, it is a two-way street, it is complicit. In other words, it's an exchange, it's become, worship has become transactional. You come in with your money, your gifts, your tithes, like we get our pockets padded and full, you get to check your religious activity box and go home feeling justified, like they were okay with that. And that's the problem, is they were okay with this system that they called worship that really had nothing to do with worshiping God. And that's why Jesus is mad. And that's why he disrupted it. And he disrupted it in a pretty dramatic way. Disruption, is it? 
does it tend to be welcome or unwelcome? Unwelcome, usually, even if it's a good thing. All right, people talk about disruptive technology. I don't know if you've heard that term. Like, uh, remember when, when Uber and, and Lyft were like new things, like ride sharing. Like, people called it disruptive technology because it was changing the game. It was a good thing for most people, unless you were a taxi driver. It was not good if you were a taxi driver. And so they fought, right? They had this barrier to entry in terms of licenses and things you had to do to become a taxi driver. All of a sudden, you have this, these companies who are disrupting the whole game for a good reason, but not always welcome. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's disrupting the, the, the status quo of religion for a good reason. He wants to see people free to worship God in truth, free to not be oppressed to worship God, free to not have to give up more than you should to worship God. Jesus is trying to free them and, and open up the pathway for that. And it's interesting, he, he demonstrates authority when he, when he does this, right? I mean, anyone who can come into, I mean, he's coming into the temple, he's coming into the church, if you will, and he's saying this is how it should be. Not only is he turning over the money tables, he's whipping the people out. He's saying, my father's house is not for this. That's what he's saying. Elsewhere he says, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples. And so he sees that his father's house is being abused for the purposes that, that God has for his worshipers, for all peoples to be able to come and pray and not be distracted and disrupted by people who care nothing about God. How do the people respond? How do the Jewish leaders respond to Jesus' disruption? They don't like it. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they're basically saying, What right do you have to come up in here and do what you're doing? Now, they're looking for a sign, and, and probably what they're looking for is like a magic trick. Tur do, that, do that water to wine thing again. Do something that will amaze us. Do something that will impress us. And what is Jesus' response? Continue reading, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. It's a bit of an unexpected reply. It's not the reply that the Jews were hoping for. And you can tell because right away they don't even know what he's talking about. They said, come on, it's taken 46 years to build this building. You're saying you're going to build, raise it up in three days? Like they're pointing the obvious like impossibility of that. That's not going to happen. Jesus is not even talking about the building. He's talking about himself. And so the Jews want, are basically trying to have like a domesticated dog. They want a pet Jesus, not a God Jesus. 
They want him to do a trick on command. And Jesus says, I'm not doing a trick on command, but I will give you a sign. I will raise this temple when you destroy it in three days. And it's a very true sign. It's just not the one they wanted. Now, when Jesus says, destroy this temple, he's doing something pretty incredible. It's not an accident that he's calling himself the temple because he is looking ahead to the future of what will happen. Guess what? That temple that they took 46 years to build, it wasn't even done. It was going to be another 20 years before it was completed. And guess what? And that would have probably put it somewhere around uh, 50 AD or so when it was completed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. All those years, decades of effort to build this temple, to be the place of God where they weren't even honoring what worship God, worship, worshiping God looked like was destroyed and crumbled except for a small piece of wall in 70 AD. Jesus knows that's going to happen. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm the temple. I, I am the presence of God. And before where you had to travel from far away to come to be in God's presence, when I die and when I'm risen, I'm here with you and that God's presence is with Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm with you until the end of the age. The presence of God is with us always, wherever we are, whoever we are. We don't have to go to a place because the worship and the presence of God is in a person, and his name is Jesus. And that's the point of what God is doing. He is the true temple. Like, imagine if, if, if forever we just had to go to this specific place. What about people who are too poor? What about people who are unable physically to go to that place? Jesus is ushering in a new season of worship that looks like going to Jesus himself. He's reduced the barriers to worship in himself. And the sign he gives gives is the resurrection, his own resurrection. And even though the Jews who were in front of him were not wanting that sign, Jesus wasn't just giving the sign for them. It's, it's interesting, as we study John, it's important to understand that Jesus has multiple audiences. There's the immediate audience, the Jewish leaders that are right in front of him. But who else is in that audience? You can say it. Gentiles, yes. Who else? Who? Uh, probably amongst the Gentiles, for sure. Another very important audience member, member, set of members that, Jesus, that would have heard Jesus say this. Disciples. Disciples. Earlier, we see in, in verse 17, it says in verse 17, His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. His disciples are watching and they're hearing what Jesus is saying. So much so that, and they believe he's the Messiah, but they're kind of like growing in that belief along the way. So they've expressed, we, we're following you because we believe you're the Messiah. 
but we're going to keep watching. <laughs> That's kind of their perspective on things. We believe, but now we're looking, and we're watching you act and speak, and we're going back to our Bibles and reading and remembering what God has said, and we're trying to match it up. That's what they're doing. That's why it says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They see Jesus fulfilling that prophecy in their midst, and that's helpful for them. And so now when Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, He's saying that in their hearing so that when he does raise up, they will remember. And guess what happens? They do remember. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken Jesus was looking ahead of time to the point when he would raise up from the dead and they would remember what he said in that moment. See, Jesus was disrupting fake worship, but he was disrupting fake worship with a, a purpose of building trust in his disciples. That was his main purpose. It, this is not a story of judgment. God's just judging the Jews this is actually just a means through which Jesus is trying to build more trust in his disciples so that when he does raise from the dead, they would go, oh my God, he really is the Son of God. He really is the Messiah. He really is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And in so doing, as we increase our belief, as we increase our trust, we become worshipers of God alone. Have you ever heard of the term fair weather fan? I'm, I'm kind of a fair weather fan in some regard. Stephanie knows that she's seen me watch games. You know, they're doing terrible. I, oh, whatever, they're garbage, and I'll turn off the TV. And when they're doing good, oh, I'm a, I'm a great fan. I'm a diehard fan when they're doing good. It's based on trust, right? It's based on belief. That to the extent that I believe my team is good, then I'm a fan. I, I devote time. I sing their praises. I read the articles. And that belief is tied to what I see, what I experience. If I don't see it, if I don't experience it, then my faith goes down and I worship other things. I wonder how many of us are fair-weather Christians, fair-weather worshipers. When it seems like things are going well, when it seems like we're getting the stuff we want, then God is good. But if it doesn't seem that way, then God is maybe not so good. Maybe I need to get those things I really want myself. Jesus understands that he can't just wave a magic wand. I guess he could, but does he want to just wave a magic wand to make us believe, to make us trust him? Or does trust take time? Does belief take time walking with him? And I think that's what we see in scriptures. Like Jesus just doesn't come and say, okay, I'm God. That's all you need to know. 
I'm just going to wave a magic wand and you're going to believe and you're going to be my disciples. He doesn't do that. What he does is he takes years to walk with them, showing them over and over again his greatness, his glory, his power, his trustworthiness, even, even, even to the point of seeing after he would die and raise, like he's weaving that back into his lives. He's seeing that I care for the heart of my disciples, of my followers, that they would believe in me. That's the whole point of this book. When we started, we looked later on. It says, I wrote this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have eternal life. That's the point. It all comes back to that. And so Jesus is pointing to the resurrection, not for the Jewish leaders right there in front of him, but for his disciples who would later use that, remember that, and it would increase their faith. And the the good news is that there's another audience in front of Jesus, and that's us. Jesus knew that John would faithfully record everything that happened so that not only would the Jewish leaders see the sign, not only would his disciples immediately see the sign, but that we also can look back and see the sign of Jesus. That sign is meant to instill faith. We look at the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Christianity is meaningless. It's worthless, really. It's like one of the core important doctrines of faith, of Christian faith, is the resurrection. If Jesus didn't raise, then we're still in our sins. But Jesus did raise from the dead. He rose from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he says, I'm not leaving you, but I'm giving you my Holy Spirit to be with you so that we have Jesus with us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And it's that truth, it's that sign which gives us confidence that Jesus is enough, that God is enough. And it's not, it's not that God doesn't care about the things that we care about. Look, we care about health. We care about resources and having enough to eat. Like, we care about those. We care about clothing. And Jesus says that. Like, do not worry about what you're going to drink or what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. The, the, heavenly, uh, the, the things that the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and its glory, and all these things will be added to you. The the, the paradox of worship is that if we seek after the things first, we lose God. But if we seek after God first, we get God and the things that we truly need. That's the beauty of worship. And it's just a matter of where is God in priority in our hearts. Do we trust God enough that if we have God, he is enough and he will supply those other things we need? Or do we not trust and think we have to make another way? As I conclude, I want to ask a a few questions. Has the church today lost sight of true worship because of a lack of faith? I was uh, getting a haircut earlier this week. 
um, just not too far from here. And uh, it was actually a younger guy who, who, who was actually familiar with Harambe, was part of Cry Out for a period of time. And we connected because he said he went to Renton High School. I said, oh, well, you've heard about Cry Out? He's like, yeah, I've heard about Cry Out. And so we start, like, naming people we both knew. I told him I was a pastor. And the first question, oh, you're a pastor? Okay. First thing he said, pray for me. Second thing he said, oh, did you hear about that pastor who was asking for a million-dollar jet on TV? He's like, what do you think about that? I was like, yeah, I heard about it. The guy who, who asked for a $65 million jet so he could go preach the gospel. He needed that. He needed a $65 million jet to preach the gospel. And he said that with a straight face. And honestly, I was sad when I heard that, when I heard him. Because that's the first thing he's, well, the great, first thing he thinks about being pastor, pray for him. That's great. Praise God that, that, that he would think that a pastor should pray for him. But the second thing was, oh, what about these, these guys, these preacher guys who are asking for all this money and all this wealth? And I, I was just sad because that is what our culture sees. When they think of the church, they think of the abuses. They think of pastors who are just asking for money to enrich themselves. And in this day and age, we have something, the invention of something called the megachurch, which I won't, I don't want to denigrate churches just because they're large. So hear me, I'm not saying that all large churches are bad, but I am asking the question, is everything around the megachurch a thing that honors God? I remember I went to in Southern California, I visited this megachurch. It was like a, a college campus. It really was. They, they had tens of thousands of people attending their church. They had multiple buildings. They had um, coffee, coffee shops, multiple coffee shops. And you could sip your coffee outside and listen to the sermon and listen to the music being piped in from the speakers as you sipped your latte. Some of you are like, that would be wonderful. And I wonder, and I don't want to say that's always a bad thing, but I just wonder if some of it is an exercise in missing the point. I just wonder. And, and I know that here at Harambe, we're not a megachurch. We're not selling merch in the foyer. Right? You're not coming here for the coffee or for the ambiance. I know we did a lot of things to beautify the building, but I don't think we're going to become a megachurch next Sunday because we have some benches out there. But my question for us, has worship become a ritual event for us? Have we lost sight of the purpose of why we pray, of why we sing, of why we open the scriptures? I would love for us to take a moment now um, not next week, not tomorrow but take a moment now and to consider that question ask God for the strength to be honest with yourself has 
church just become a means that we put on our church clothes so that people can think we're followers of Jesus, so that people can think we worship God and we praise the Lord. Jesus says, we don't fool him. Like, we might fool other people, but we don't fool him. He sees our hearts. He sees our motivations. And yet, despite Jesus seeing those motivations, Jesus still went to the cross for you. He still went to the cross for us. And he still rose for us. Jesus knew, even now, the, 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 the wrong motivations that we have in our heart when it comes to worship, Jesus died for that. He doesn't just say, oh, you've got the wrong motivations, you should have got it, and discards us. He says, no, I still care about you, I still want you to believe, and there's still grace every day, every moment. And so my hope for us is that we would take a moment and just reflect and seek God. And I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask God to help us to reveal our hearts, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with each other, to ask for forgiveness, repent if we have been treating worship as a ritual. And I believe God will meet us this morning. God will meet you where you are this morning in your heart. Let me pray for us. And then I, I just want to take some time to just pray silently where you're at and seek the Lord. Father, I know that this message may be heavy for some. Lord, I'm encouraged by your grace to give us the ultimate sign of your authority and your reality and your supremacy and your sufficiency. Father, I ask that you would reveal in our hearts where we have treated worship as something secondary or where we've treated worship as a means to an end or whether we've treated worship as just something to make us appear holy to appear like we believe Father I pray that you would comfort us in the truth that you rose from the dead that your son Jesus rose from the dead Lord, and that you've given your life for us, to love us, to give us eternal life with you. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see how good you are. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see how gracious you've been to us, that we would be able to look in our life and, and see answered prayer after answered prayer after answered prayer. It may not have been the answer we were looking for, but it's the answer we needed. 
Father, would you make yourself sweet to us? Would you cause all the things that we worry about and stress over to just fall to the ground in the blazing light of your glory? Help us to believe. Help us to believe. Jesus. Amen.